This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. This is Knowledge at Wharton, and you're listening to Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. While the concerns of how to deal with end-of-life care are important questions to be asked and actions to take, but in some cases, the opinions of the family and doctors clash and can cause friction when it is better to come to a common understanding. The book At Peace looks at many of those important decisions to make in those last few days, weeks, or maybe even months for that loved one, as make the, making them as comfortable as possible. Dr. Samuel Harrington is the author of the book. He's a retired doctor from Sibley Memorial Hospital in Washington, D.C., as well as being on the board of a nonprofit hospice in the Washington, D.C. area. And it's a pleasure to have him joining us on the show right now. Dr. Harrington, thank you again for your time. Well, Dan, thank you very much. Please call me Sam. Uh, I've enjoyed listening to your shows. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. Thank you, Sam. All the best. Um, so this really has been a, a, a critical part of, of your career and your life, really thinking about this part of the medical process. Well, I have. Uh, I, I didn't begin my career doing that. I yeah. began as a super subspecialist in gastroenterology. But as I, my career progressed, I saw that we were doing too much to people at the end of a long life and not really enough for them. And in particular, I'd witnessed my parents age from middle age to old age, then dwindle and die. And I saw that uh, simultaneously medicine was changing from what I perceived to be a healing art when I first went into it to a giant commercial enterprise. And there was a disconnect between what my parents wanted at the end of a long life and what we were doing to patients in the hospital. And uh, I wrote this book to try and shift that. But part of what you speak of from the medical side of things has to be something that is being driven by the medical community, correct? Well, it's, it's driven by the medical community, the media, the uh, patient's expectations. So patients drive the process too. I mean, it's multifactorial uh, and it will take a lot to shift it, and, and shift is coming, but it's not really coming fast enough to save people from dying in the hospital. Uh, we, we have to keep in mind that 80 to 90 percent of elderly people, when uh, uh, asked by medical professionals, express a preference to die at home, right. and yet 60 percent of them die either in hospitals or in uh, skilled nursing circumstances. So that that disconnect is what I'm trying to address, and um, and it's fundamental that if you want to die at home, you have to say one has to say uh, understand when it is appropriate to say no to hospitalization, and that is really the bulk of the book, trying to help people understand, based on their disease, what. Uh, when it is time to say no, thank you to more aggressive treatment. Right, and I, I wanted to dig into that anyway, so we'll take uh, take that chance here. Uh, the, the variety of, of of different diseases that you talk about, uh, there there are obviously some some. Well, when you're talking about this part of life, all of these diseases are critical. But the the decision process with some of these, uh, I, I find very interesting as to when you make that call to say. 
nope, I'm done. I, I'm done with medical means. I just want to go home and, and, and I want to live out my, my remaining days or weeks, whatever it might be, in the comfort of my home and, and surrounded by my family. Well, right. Medicine can be as complicated as we want to make it. I try and make it a little bit simplified in the book by pointing out that 90% of people over the age of 65 die with one of six major diagnoses. At least this is according to the CDC. So the six common illnesses that, are, that account for 90% of deaths in elderly patients uh, are congestive heart failure, cancer, stroke, um, diabetes, dementia, and uh, chronic lung disease. And if you can foresee yourself falling into one of those categories, then you can understand the process, discuss it with your doctor, and foresee certain circumstances that uh, you might uh, say, okay, I've reached a point with my disease that it's now appropriate for me to say no, that further aggressive therapy is more likely to decrease the quality of my life than to prolong my life in a meaningful way. So if I can't prolong it meaningfully but can only decrease the quality, okay, it's time for me to go home, and it's time for me to say no to hospitalization. So let's take two of those and, and look at them for a second. When you go through the process of somebody that is dealing with cancer in comparison to somebody that is dealing with dementia, what are some of the, the factors you think that, that are critical that, that families and doctors should really consider? Well, the critical factors are uh, the stage of the disease, the ability of the patient to take care of themselves, and the age, because uh, numerical age it does not define us as being old, but it is a factor in our thinking. If somebody's 95, we're going to deal with them, or should, uh, differently than if they were 65. But if they have a stage one cancer, yes, of course, they should. a person should seek treatment. Uh, but if they have stage three, four, uh, stage two or three or four cancer, and it's progressed and it's become less responsive to treatment, and during the treatment process, they've lost the ability uh, to care for themselves uh, in, the, in the form of either what we call activities of daily living, that means you can't bathe yourself or you can't feed yourself or right. you can't dress yourself, or instrumental activities of daily living, you can't do your own checkbook and can't shop and et cetera. Um, as your performance status declines, if your disease is accelerating and your age is advancing, well, where those lines intersect, that is the zone where I think people should say to themselves, aggressive treatment is not likely to help me further. I need to rethink what I'm doing. And my advice is this is where you go, uh, you consider palliative care, and then subsequently hospice care. Right. That was, that was going to be my next question is how do you make that designation between spending that time at home and, and, and going to a hospice? Well, well, most hospice care is delivered at home now. Okay. Uh, only, so it's rare to go into a hospice, okay. those, but, uh, but people don't necessarily qualify for hospice benefits when they want to consider hospice care because the government will only pay for uh, hospice benefits, meaning the medical treatments, uh, after a certain point when, when a doctor has designated that a person has six months or less to live. But I would promote palliative care before that. And indeed, in my father's case, 
uh, when he when it was clear that he couldn't take care of himself and live independently, uh, and in fact had fallen three times in one week in his apartment, we decided, my sisters and I, okay, it's time to think of the next step. Let's try to get him into a hospice yeah. uh, uh, care circumstance because I wanted him protected from emergency room trips. Uh, and uh, and yet it wasn't clear what his life expectancy was. So we sort of struggled to get him into a hospice. And he did, in fact, live eight months after that. Um, but the point is you don't wait until it's really late in the course of an illness to think about palliative care or hospice. That's one of the big misconceptions, that it, it's only designed for the last few days. Uh, my idea is get into hospice while you're still viable, while you still can get up and around. Mm-hmm. My father's greatest... Um, uh, pleasure was to go to uh, the uh, broadcasts of the opera in the local <laughs> movie houses on right. a Saturday, and and one hospice rejected him because they said, hey, "Well, he doesn't, he's not terminally ill, and he still gets out of the apartment." And yet another hospice said, "Well, our goal is to have people um, improve the quality of their life by getting out and going to the opera." So, okay, we'll still take him despite this particular um, his status. So you have to sort of be aggressive about it, too. You can't just uh, say, oh, well, the hospice doesn't want him. Um, uh, we won't try again. How much How much does the, the level of pain that a person may be suffering from because of their disease, how much does that have to play into the decision as well? Well, that is a huge factor. I, my father was lucky in that his he had no particularly painful circumstances other than old age and and falling and degenerative arthritis, etc. But if a person has uh, cancer that's spread to the bone and has terrible bone pain, that changes the equation. And and yet probably that person would be more amenable to palliative care sooner than somebody who is not suffering pain. So pain is a giant factor, but usually pushes in my experience, patients toward palliative care rather than away from it. You talk in the book about uh, what I think is a very powerful word in this whole process, and that's hope. And a lot of people, maybe not necessarily the patient themselves, but the family members have hope that there is there is some way to be able to alter the path of a person that that is dealing with a disease like that. You take time to, to, to discuss hope, but also those conversations that those real hard ones that, that occurred later on in the process. Well, yes, uh, hope is an enormously important uh, source of happiness to us. But false hope is is not false. Hope uh, is really what I consider a complication of, of futile care. Uh, we want to promote hope but we want it to be realistic. So after a certain point, we really can't hope for significant prolongation of life. We have to change the goal of hope to something else, something perhaps um, uh, uh, something like a heritage or some appreciation for what we leave behind. And uh, I think that we have... False hope really leads us down a path of suffering as people get overtreated, and uh, we have to rejigger our perspective on that. 
from from your perspective and and the long time that that you have spent in the medical community, what can what can the medical community do to help this process out even further? Well, I think the medical community can be more honest about um, what our treatments have to offer. And I think the medical community can be more honest about dealing with prognosis. If we if we don't talk to patients about prognosis, they don't have a chance to understand uh, what we really have to offer. And there are doctors that I've known who said, I don't want to talk about prognosis with patients because it will take away their hope or it right. will, um, it will, uh, it sounds, they will think that things are helpless. Uh, for example, when my mother at age 82 was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, uh, I knew that her prognosis was a median survival of 10 months. And yet at age 82, she was not likely to make it to 10 months because uh, younger patients prematurely diagnosed with lung cancer were the ones who were more likely to make it to 10 months. So I honestly told my mother that I didn't expect her to be, um, uh, that her median life expectancy was 10 months. And I framed it up by saying, Mom, if we had 100 people in this apartment, it would be very crowded, but in, a, in 10 months, half of them wouldn't be here. Yeah. We just don't know which half. And after some hand-wringing and difficult emotional moments, we then reset our focus on getting to my daughter's wedding about five months into the future at that point so that <clears throat> we weren't focused on prolonging life. We had a different, a more realistic target. And I felt you know, very... I mean, it was a very difficult conversation, but it was an honest one that uh, ultimately we could all live with and appreciate. And we weren't tied into taking too many aggressive treatments that might, in fact, have complicated her situation trying to get to my daughter's wedding. And and that's part of what you talk about in terms of recognizing a, a terminal illness and, and understanding what the process actually realistically should be, correct? Correct. I, I think we have to uh, doctors have to be more forthright. Having a terminal illness doesn't mean you're in a terminal situation. It just means you have to uh, refocus and make different plans and make diff- and make appropriate accommodations. Because if you think, well, if every patient thinks I'm going to beat this, I'm going to I'm going to uh, live forever, or or this I'm going to you know I'm going to beat this, I'm going to I'm going to come through this. Well. Most people don't, and we have to understand realistically what the expectations should be rather than just blindly um, moving forward. We are joined on the phone by uh, Dr. Samuel Harrington. He is the author of At Peace, Choosing a Good Life After, or excuse me, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866, or if you'd like, Send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111, B-I-Z Radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You, you talk a, a lot about a variety of different aspects to this whole process, but you even go into uh, the, the issues surrounding the death certificate and, and what they actually say. Well, I think that I, I have a chapter on uh, describing death certificates as a way of, of discussing multiple uh, end-of-life scenarios so we can use the same, um, so that people can see 
how diseases play out and come up with an understanding of where that patient in these hypothetical scenarios I set up might have made a different uh, decision. I, I also like to promote the idea of a vision. If you can share a vision of how uh, your family member, your loved one, uh, sees the end of their life, you can work with that uh, almost more easily at first than having the hard conversation about whether you want to be on a breathing machine or not. Right. Uh, so when my father, he and I were discussing an aortic aneurysm repair, he had an aortic aneurysm, a ballooned blood vessel. If it ruptured, it would be fatal. And uh, yet he was resistant to repairing it because he knew from a previous uh, person's experience with an aneurysm that it would, if it ruptured, he would die quickly. It would be painful, but he would decline emergency surgery and take uh, pain medicine, palliative pain medicine. And that was his vision. And that allowed, it was a vision to die quickly and decisively. And knowing that, my sisters and I could make other medical decisions uh, with him uh, so that if the opportunity to have that kind of quick, decisive death arose, then we would understand that that's what he wanted and we wouldn't try and uh, fight it on his behalf. What was the what were the last several weeks and months for you in dealing with the, with the death of your parents? And, and obviously having a lot of this knowledge, uh, I think, obviously, is a, is a huge benefit for you. But, you know, as this process played out, I would imagine there were even uh, situations and times where you even had to take a step back. Oh, uh, I was uh, I was quite deeply involved with uh, both of them. I did have to take a step back. Uh, I did uh, when my father, uh, when my father's weakness to pro progressed to the point where he couldn't get out of bed, he couldn't transfer himself uh, from bed to chair, and then he couldn't transfer even with caregivers. Right. He was simply too weak. Then I went out and I got him a hoist from uh, from his hospice to mechanically lift him uh, into his chair. Well, uh, he hated that. Yeah. <laughs> Turned out he just hated it. And uh, I trained everybody uh, in the apartment how to deal with all his caregivers. And the minute I left, he said, I'm done. I will not get in that. And he became bed bound. And then that uh, after that, it was a matter of weeks. Uh, but my point is, um, we, we all want the best for our family members. We sometimes have to wait for them to actually tell us what, what they want. Well, and I guess to a degree, it also kind of plays into the fact, and you touch on it in the book, is the fact if, if you have a diagnosis that, that says you are going to have six months to live, 10 months to live, whatever that, 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 that level is, it, it is it is something very different from what the mind will tell you as the person involved in this. I mean, it's not like this person is is looking forward to that period of time, not wanting to die. It is just part of the entire process. Now, that may be something that is at times very hard for the people that are involved in this, the patient and the family members to deal with. That's I would imagine times where it can it can cause some some angst between uh, both sides. Absolutely. Patients don't really want to die. My father certainly didn't want to die. My mother didn't want to die. But they, but with some understanding, one can see the inevitability of it and then be able to assert some control. 
And I, let me let me say that the the concept of an, a good death has been well studied. Not everybody's going to agree on a vision, but the attributes of a good death have been dissected, and control is the number one important attribute. Being able to make decisions for yourself, like my father saying, "I, you know, no more hoist." If he were in the hospital. Uh, it would be much harder. People would be hoisting them around. But at home, right. you can say, that's it. No hoist. Uh, the other attributes of a good death, and there are five, to make it simple, would be control, comfort, as in the absence of pain, closure, meaning uh, you, get, you can uh, reconcile with family and friends, affirmation, meaning that that person, the patient, is valued, mm-hmm. and their values are affirmed, and then trust, being able, having a an environment where they're comfortable and surrounded by people they trust. But if you flip those attributes and look at the the reverse meaning, control becomes helplessness, uh, comfort becomes pain, uh, closure becomes isolation, affirmation is denial, and, yeah. and trust is distrust or frustration. And those attributes, helplessness, pain, etc., that pretty much describes what it's like to die in the intensive care unit, if not even on a hospital ward. So, you, go, go, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Finish up. So you want to, you know, you, you want to, you you have to understand that uh, and and try and work toward the attributes of a good death or a better death uh, with your family uh, as a united force. Thank you for coming on today, Sam. Uh, all the best with the book. It really is a great piece of uh, literature and information for people that, you know, uh, if they get into that uh, period of their loved one's life, I think it's it's very important. Thank you, sir, for coming on today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 